You are listening to a Himal South Asian podcast. Pakistan's media has of late made news for all the wrong reasons, from state censorship to journalists being laid off in large numbers. Despite a growth in the number of media establishments in the last several years, the state has found new ways to silence independent journalism and manage public perception. In this episode of Himal Interviews, we talk to Omar Varaj, who reported from Pakistan for Time magazine and the Independent Daily for nearly a decade and is currently Amnesty International's Deputy Regional Director for South Asia. In this conversation with our editor Anohita Majumdar, Varaj talks about the transformation of Pakistani journalism, the military's encroachment in traditional and social media, and the wrong lessons the Pakistani establishment learned from Indian journalism. Thank you for joining us, Omar Varej, for this Himal South Asian podcast. It's uh, great to have you here in our office in Colombo. Uh, we thought we would get an overview of the situation of Pakistani media from you today. Thank you very, very much for having me. And I'm very happy to be in your Himal offices. I've been a reader for many years. It's great to be able to visit you and it's really great to be on this podcast. What we wanted to talk uh, with you about today was... Uh, the situation of Pakistani media seems to be particularly grim going by what one has been reading and hearing uh, from friends in Pakistan. Uh, while there have been restrictions and attacks on Pakistani media in earlier years as well, but uh, it seems that the situation has become dire over a number of fronts. Would you like to give us a brief idea of the situation? Thank you for uh, raising this. I think it's actually an issue that's been underreported and poorly understood outside of Pakistan. Uh, as you mentioned, the Pakistan media has struggled over a number of years for different reasons. So I just want to take you back if a bit, if I can, to 2007. This was the last year of General Musharraf's rule. And at this stage, as you might remember, there was suddenly the emergence of a number of independent news channels in Pakistan. Before then, uh, Pakistani journalism was traditionally limited to print and the state TV broadcaster. And so over that time, you had journalists who were experienced in the, in, from print, who actually had very professional news channels and shows on television in Urdu. This expanded the audience for Pakistani news a great deal. And when it came to that crucial year, when the lawyers' movement was going on, when General Musharraf was facing calls for his resignation, when former prime ministers, Benazir Bhutto and Nawashri, were coming back, the media was a very powerful force. And it was seen as having catalyzed this movement of opposition against Musharraf. At that moment, the Pakistani establishment realized that actually here you have this force. It's no longer a pliant tool in the hands of the government of the day. It has its own mind. It's able to reach people in much greater numbers than ever before. It's not limited to elite audiences and it really can't be controlled in the way journalists used to be controlled before. Uh, part of this was also interesting because it empowered journalists. They suddenly paid good salaries. You go from days when journalists were paid very, very poorly in print to suddenly anchors were making multiple lakhs. Pakistani news anchors, some of them, uh, 
the television show hosts make more than British journalists do or American journalists. It's quite true. Of course, within journalism and journalists and journalists, there are still many who are very poorly paid yes. and then others who are like stars and command enormous salaries. And I think the high salaries are also largely in the electronic media. Yes. But even within the electronic media, your electronic media reporter got multiples of what he used to get as a metro reporter in, you know, or for example, there's a famous case where one of the executives of Geo News, which is the biggest channel, uh, used to be paid 30,000 rupees at Herald magazine in Pakistan and now makes more than 30 lakh. Uh, it's quite a huge jump in terms of salary. These things happen, but it, on the whole, it improved the situation for journalists because there was more advertising revenue coming in. Journalists were paid better salaries. Uh, there were more journalists. This media became another center of power in Pakistan. So with the resumption of democracy, you had the civilians reclaim some power in parliament and the prime minister's house, the executive, uh, with the assertion of the judiciary the judiciary no longer applied until it became a power center itself. The military, of course, was one. You have the bureaucrats. But then you also had the media. Pakistan's story over the last decade has been an interplay between these different power centers. What we have now seen in recent years is that media space fragments. So what was, in 2007, a united front of journalists supporting democracy, asking hard questions of the dictatorship of the day, calling for a restoration of democracy, supporting an independent judiciary, suddenly turned into uh, a space where different powerful interests started backing different media houses to their own ends. You had new entrants into the media, so you, the channels went from being owned by traditional media houses in Pakistan, like, for example, the Jung Group used to own the news and they ran Geo, the Dawn newspaper, which you're very familiar with. They had their own channel. Uh, there was a financial newspaper called Business Recorder, which had an uh, Arch TV. And there was in Lahore, the Nawai Vakht Foundation, which is the old conservative Urdu newspaper, who had their English language uh, Newspaper The Nation, and then Vak TV. These groups have been pushed to one side, where you've got now the entry of random channels, Channel 92, Channel 24, Channel Hum TV, this channel, that channel. Uh, there's an old channel called AIY News, which is run by a gold uh, dealer uh, who used to be based in Dubai. That's become very strong. And suddenly you have these people, businessmen whose primary business interests lie elsewhere. They're not the Rupert Murdochs or the Salzburgers or, you know, the, even the Conrad Blacks of that, remember, in the Western world where you have these media tycoons. These are people who make their money elsewhere. They make their profits elsewhere. They recycle them through uh, media houses. That gives them political influence and helps them protect their own business interests in a way that they weren't able to before. Then looking into the Pakistani journalist model, the way you are able to secure revenue from government ads, this actually became 
a money spinner for some people. You actually had business owners who were losing money in their core businesses and recuperating it through owning a channel. In 2014, the then government of Nawaz Sharif was up against the ropes. Imran Khan, who is now prime minister, was leading an, a movement on the streets demanding that there be a new election, claiming that the previous election had been rigged, and he held the sit-in protests. That got uh, very big, it got a lot of attention, and it became uh, the focus of uh, different media groups peddling different agendas. Suddenly you find there were some media channels who were backing the government and others who were backing the military and the opposition against the government of the day. And it became quite ugly to the extent that they started opposing each other. So what had been a situation where there was an unwritten rule amongst journalists that whatever happens, whatever differences I have, I'm right wing, you're left wing, I have sympathies in terms of this, I don't agree with your style of journalism, but we collectively will fight for journalist freedom, that compact was broken. And suddenly you had journalists turn on each other, media channels turn on each other, and become very partisan and sharply divided to the extent that you could be covering, looking at the same event, like the sit-down protests in 2014. And on one channel, you're listening to news of bullets being fired, people being killed, tear gas being used, all these other things. And you find other reports that actually none of this happened at all. On the one hand, they are supporting the protests and just pushing the narrative of the people giving the speeches, giving them endless live coverage. And on the other hand, no coverage at all or attempts to discredit the people who are there. I think uh, it's really good you've given us this overview because a number of factors, I think, have uh, led to the situation uh, that is there today in terms of the Pakistani media. And the advent of money, I think, mm -hmm. is sometimes underestimated. Uh, I think we're seeing this not just in Pakistan, but in other places in uh, South Asia where the media are so polarized in terms of their coverage that you feel like you're looking or hearing or reading about two completely different events when you go to different uh, sites. But I wanted to ask you briefly here, is this polarization, the divide in the journalistic community also linked to the retreat of democratic space at a certain time? This almost seemed like the civilian government, the civilian authorities, the political leadership was able to assert itself. And there was a brief moment of hope, I think, all over South Asia that Pakistan was finally coming under civilian authority more fully. But that was a brief moment. There was a moment where you could actually look around South Asia and say every country is a democracy. It didn't last very long. You may still be procedurally a democracy, but in terms of the institutions, in terms of accountability, in terms of the protection of the rights of journalists and human rights and other things which are very important to democracies, those things eroded. What you had last year was uh, an election that marked two consecutive transfers of power. Never happened in Pakistan before. What you found in the media, however, was a reflection of the divisions that you saw uh, in terms of the political elites of the country. On the one hand, you had the military backing Imran Khan very strongly, pushing a very strong nationalist line, 
um, using religion where it was convenient to do so. Not in an explicit sense that you may find, for example, with the BJP in India, but at certain moments. You certainly saw it. For example, Imran Khan backed the blasphemy laws in the middle of his campaign, even though he had in the past uh, said they needed to be amended and fought for the rights of the minorities uh, who had faced grave injustices as a result. On the other hand, you had uh, the opposition, which was quite besieged, and then the government of Nawaz Sharif, outgoing, and the Pakistan People's Party, which so the traditional democratic parties, on the one hand, and the traditional media houses. Because while they were accused of being pro-Nawaz or something, actually in reality what they were arguing for was a maintenance of democratic norms. But because they were seen as not being keen to get rid of these dynasties and tear them apart and destroy them and wipe them out, they were accused of being supporters of the old corrupt dynasties. And that's the division you have now. Since the election, what you have seen is very serious structural adjustments made by the military. In the past, as you mentioned at the start, there have been attacks on journalists, but it tended to be an attack on a particular journalist for a particular story. In 2014, two people I know quite well, Hamid Mir and Raza Rumi, both narrowly survived assassination attempts. Those were attacks directly on them by non-state actors who may have had the backing of someone else. And others who didn't survive, like Salim Shahzad. Salim Shahzad in 2011, I covered his uh, killing. There were others before then. There was um, uh, Wali Khan Baba, who was killed in Karachi as well. But that used to be, again, on a particular issue, targeting someone for something that they did. In Salim Shahzad's case, you could go back, look at his last stories, see the threats that came to him. Now, however, the military moved into a completely new thing where they said, no, we're not going to deal with people at an individual journalist level alone. They still do that. They started targeting the owners and the very economics that underpin journalism in Pakistan. They started doing that by slashing ads. So even as we're speaking right now, Dawn, which is a newspaper, considered the paper of record of Pakistan, founded by the founder of the country, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, has had all government ads withdrawn from it. It's a crude intimidation tactic and way to undermine a paper by, because you, you are tilting the field in favor of newspapers and other outlets you consider sympathetic to you. Because Dawn has a record of being quite fiercely independent, they have been punished for that. You see that with television as well. So ARY, which is a very pro-government, pro-military channel, has been lavished with advertisements. As a result of this, they've been able to push certain agendas by simply targeting the owners, eliminate journalists they see as inconvenient, put the pressure of ad revenues there, and you can completely alter the media landscape without having your fingerprints over any incident. There doesn't need to be a body of a dead journalist that turns up. They don't have to be any broken bones. Uh, you're not threatening people. You are just silencing them by turning a few knobs and pulling a few levers. And it happens on a much bigger, more lasting scale than anything before. Well, we had, uh, I would say, a very mild version of it, perhaps. But, uh, you know, we were 
forced to wind up in our previous home in Kathmandu because of what we call bureaucratic strangulation. And that is so much more effective than direct censorship, which uh, can have a cost for the group or government or organization which is actually censoring you. But by turning off the tap at uh, crucial levels, and it's not just been ad revenue, but it has also been pressure on the carriers, for example, the cable networks, the distributors of uh, newspapers. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about these uh, various ways? So that's really interesting. A few months ago, I was in Pakistan and I spoke to someone who was one of Pakistan's most famous journalists, Talat Hussain. He used to have a show on prime time on Pakistan's biggest channel then Geo News. And he described to me what happens in this case. I said, how does this work? He said, well, what they do is you call the cable operator in key metropolitan markets and you get them to drop the channel in those places. So suddenly someone's watching cable, they're switching through the news and they can't find the channel. The cable operators just switched it off. We used to see this happen at moments of political tension, where, for example, there are protests. General Musharraf used to get very nervous about this, and he'd say, okay, turn them off. The difference with Musharraf was he was very open about everything he did. He said, look, I'm going to shut all your channels down. Here's my degree. This is why you have... No one, no one had any doubts about why it happened or who did it. Now you have this insidious form where suddenly columns are disappearing in newspapers that weren't being published and channels you can't see. When the channel goes off the air, the person who bought the ads says, where's my money? I wanted to target this neighborhood in Karachi, Defense in Clifton, which is the wealthiest, or Gulberg in Lahore, or the F sectors in Islamabad, and my consumer base does not see the ads. That then is used to apply pressure on the owner, who then goes and he tries to figure out, well, what's happening here? And he discovers, wait, it's actually the content of this program, or it's that particular presenter, and then they get rid of him. And then once those adjustments have been made, suddenly you see uh, things return to normal. Or if you are being quite favorable, you can have enhanced visibility for no cost at all. Uh, you mentioned Talat Hussein and yeah. his program was, of course, also dropped. Yes, it was dropped. And before that, it, it, it went in a phase where earlier what happened was suddenly things were being censored live on the air. So there's a regu- regulatory body called PEMRA, the Pakistan Electronic Media Regulation Authority. And uh, they exercise power quite arbitrarily. So suddenly they decide, well, certain things can't be said. So, for example, after the election, a number of political parties alleged that they had been rigging in the lead up and afterwards. Not so much. It's much harder to rig things on the day. Ballot stuffing is a very crude old practice that can only get you so far. It's much easier to pull candidates, get them to join other parties, get others to step down. Do things like that. And so there was some reporting on this. Suddenly, what you found after the elections or during that phase was if someone said rigging, you'd hear a beep. If someone said ISI, the intelligence agency, you'd hear a beep instead. And it became a very bizarre situation where you couldn't make out what people are saying or you're wondering. And suddenly people refer to euphemisms. So they'd say things like, well, the angels, to refer to the intelligence agencies, Farishte, okay, or 
well, you know those people who were in charge, or they would hint and make you, resort to euphemisms instead. Um, and then, to, then Dalit's show got dropped. Then you suddenly saw other anchors drop as well. And this is the most chilling thing, where you can have credibility as a journalist. You can even have an audience that wants to see you, but you can be denied those things. So those things used to protect journalists in a certain way. And they still do in South Asia. Certain journalists are able to survive because there is a demand to read them or to hear them. There are people, channels and newspaper editors know, however inconvenient their opinions, there will be a cost of silencing them. That cost is no longer felt. And so you end up with this very sharply polarized landscape that has now gone from that to becoming quite anodyne, where what you're looking at now is a very interesting phenomenon where you don't longer have the old state TV. You have lots of privatized clones of it instead. And you so it, on at first appearance, it looks like a big, thriving media. If you listen to the Pakistani delegation at the UN Human Rights Council, one of the things they say, we've got a flourishing media and a vibrant civil society. Total nonsense. In fact, several years ago, we published a special issue of Himal, which we called... Uh, Growing media shrinking spaces, yes, uh, which is, I think, the phenomenon you're referring to, where there's proliferation, but it's more of the same, and it's not necessarily critical or healthy journalism. Absolutely, and uh, it's reinforcing these different narratives. Now, what lies behind this? So, one thing I was wondering about was, I understand the state making attacks on the media when it feels nervous. So, Musharraf shut down the channels when he was wavering. Other governments did this as well. Aziz Zadari faced this demonstration of lawyers and he freaked out and he shut Gio off and in protest, Shari Rahman resigned. But here you have a situation where the government is quite strong. The military is utterly unassailable. The judiciary is there backing them both. Why do they feel threatened? And realize, well, no, they don't feel threatened. So what is it that bothers them? And then you listen to the chief military spokesman and he keeps mentioning this thing called hybrid warfare or fifth generation warfare. What is this thing? And the strange thing is I thought this was just a gimmick, that this was propaganda, this is a trope used to try and justify repressive actions. It seems as if they actually believe the propaganda. You hear it in Egypt and other places as well. And fifth-generation warfare means you used to have these different forms of warfare that went from intimate physical combat to firing people from a distance to doing all these things. Fifth-generation is supposedly where you engage in warfare through mindsets and devastate people's mindsets. You don't have to use physical. If you read the speeches of the Pakistani army chief and the military spokesperson, they keep referring to this. They see social media as this new menace. They see it somehow as a form of social engineering where Pakistan's enemies, Pakistan's narrative, by the way, is one of constantly being under siege, constantly fighting for its existence, constantly fighting off enemies within and without. And so they say, well, this is a new way by which Pakistanis are being divided, the state is being subverted, and its existence continues to be under threat. However, what they're doing in response to this is actually the same thing they accuse the enemies of, which is they are now socially engineering things. They are trying to, like you pointed out, give the illusion of diversity by presenting you know, bland uniformity. 
But then at the same time, they've got all these proxies that they've let out in social media. So if you go on Twitter, half the war is being fought on Twitter, maybe more of it, and Facebook. So you have people who are basically echoing the messages of the military, but seeming like, if you look at their profiles, they look like cool, hip, young people who, are, who have their own independent minds. And these are the same people, if you say anything critical, you have a lynch mob unleashed on you. And this is how, there's a kind of, uh, it kind of reminds me of what uh, Antonio Gramsci said about force and consent. So where you can't get consent, you resort to force. And that's what they're doing. In fact, uh, the military spokesman, I think, also had a press conference where he singled out uh, journalists who were pro-state and anti-state according to their lights, naming people. They have this new phenomenon where they, um, it used to be the case, going back to 2007 in those days, where any self-respecting journalist would like to maintain some distance with the military officially, even if they completely agreed with them, even if they're totally sympathetic to them. But some distance meaning you would ask regular questions in a press conference. You would not just take the military's opinion, but consult experts and politicians and get their views. Now you have this extraordinary spectacle where the military spokesperson is congratulating journalists, journalists are congratulating the military spokesperson, the government is handing out awards to both at the same ceremonies. So that taboo has totally been wiped away. The journalistic norms that used to exist have kind of vanished. And so at the same time, there's a practice now of shaming journalists who are seen as too independent and undermining them. The problem is they are now able to enforce this in a way where they can say, not just we will remove you from this channel, this newspaper, and that will be a temporary situation. There used to be some broader rules of engagement where you wouldn't be that harsh towards the journalists. They would be able to find employment elsewhere. In fact, some people are forever recreating themselves. But now it means you're blacklisted. You will not work again. And so there are these journalists that they pointed out at the press conference who are no longer working, who cannot actually make their living as journalists anymore and have been relegated to the social media space. And then they're getting really, really petty where, for example, Mohammed bin Salman, who was Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, was visiting Pakistan. And in solidarity as journalists, five or six journalists changed their display pics on Twitter to pictures of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was tortured and killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. As a result of that, we find this document that the intelligence services have been ordered to initiate inquiries into these people and why they changed their display pics on Twitter and uh, that they embarrassed uh, a visiting head of state. So what you're saying is that while there were restrictions and repression and attack on journalists earlier, there were some red lines which were not crossed. And that is no longer the, the case, that uh, the media is fair game at all costs. Yes, I, th- I think that's it. And I think it's a very, very worrying situation. 
And apart from the well-known journalists who have been removed uh, under pressure, but a lot of journalists are also losing their job because of the economic environment of the media houses. So this is where one government, I think there, there is a problem with the model. The reliance on government ads made journalists vulnerable in any case. And the, the multiple assaults here, some aren't engineered, some are simply you're losing audiences to the digital space. And that undermines your advertising spaces, the old model of having the huge Sunday newspaper, that would be the source of all of your revenue is gone. Things like that have changed. But at the same time, there has been pressure on advertisers and there has been pressure on owners. It's almost as if, if Pakistani media is going to have spaces where there can be critical coverage, where you can have independent views, where you can ask tough questions of people in power, it may have to take a different form altogether. Can you talk briefly about the regulatory environment for media? You mentioned PEMRA, and there is also the PECA, which I mm. think came in in 2016. And the little bit I've read, PEMRA, for example, I think has been issuing very broad-ranging directives to the media saying ne- they should not have too much of negative reports or reports which impact negatively on the image of Pakistan. These sweeping uh, kind of statements, I think, are obviously uh, forced journalists to self-censor all the time. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the regulatory environment? So the Pakistani media actually has been traditionally very critical. It's held governments to account, it's held the military to account. Uh, What affected these things was actually the media in India. As the political establishment saw that India benefits from a largely supportive media that is 100% behind the armed forces, and 100% behind the government, and sells the brand of India internationally, they said, why can't we have that? So they shamed Pakistanis with this model, and they said, no, what we need is positive coverage. We need to be able to sell an image of Pakistan that's a new image of Pakistan. That's no longer, we have won our war on terror, which they've had some successes with. Rates of terrorism have fallen dramatically. Pakistan is, is a much safer place now than it used to be. And so now we want to grow our economy. We want to look strong in front of the world. We want to be able to be treated not as a basket case, but as a serious state, either in South Asia or in the broader Muslim world. And so what we need is favorable coverage like India gets. And look, they can do it because they're patriots. So what's wrong with you? So in terms of the law, uh, what can they do to journalists who don't follow this dictum? So the laws are incredibly vague. They say things like if you disrespect the armed forces or you bring something into disrepute. The defamation laws are so broad that, you know, basic basic journalism can fall foul of it. Even more insidious is PICA, that you mentioned, the Pakistan Electronic Crimes Act. Where technically for liking a tweet, retweeting a particular tweet, doing something, you can fall foul of this. And that has been really, really insidious. We see the old style repression in some of its worst forms come out. Where we have at Amnesty, for example, we've monitored cases where bloggers, for making critical comments, these aren't people who are well known, these aren't people with large audiences. 
But just because they actually were critical of the military or the government, they were forcibly disappeared and tortured. So these regulatory organizations, authorities, however, are a front. They're a facade. They're Potemkin institutions. The real thing happening in the background is you have the military establishment that's saying, we then they're watching Twitter very closely, they're watching the news very closely, the powers of monitoring are very, very vast, and their ambitions have grown even greater. If they don't like something, they will take action on it. What they're trying to do, though, is put it under the ambit of the law in some kind of way and move away from the image of being thugs who are act on arbitrary whims and use tactics like beating up journalists and torturing them. Though, as you said, the disappearances and the abductions, even when they have been temporary, seem to have become more frequent. Yes. You see, if you look at those stats, the traditional metrics that CPJ or ICJ use, Pakistan doesn't do so badly on them. There aren't any journalists in jail. There are not many journalists who get killed. Uh, you don't have those attacks anymore. What you have instead is these more insidious forms of things. Social media, the, the only two, the reason why they target social media in this way is there are only two spaces left where you can actually have any kind of critical coverage. It's social media and it's the international media. The international media, they regulate by denying visas, blocking access, or smearing through different campaigns. Social media is a much harder beast to control. And that's where they resort to even uglier measures. Because there's no other way of getting around it. They will try and enforce these laws, but then you have someone else sitting abroad who can do that. And you get uh, lots of people on Twitter get legal notices now saying the government has complained about what they do. We did a report last year where what we found was there were human rights activists who were being sent phishing uh, malware through Facebook. They would click on a link and suddenly their entire... Uh, Facebook page and their computer were compromised. They could access their camera, they could access their files, they could access their photos and do all of this. The more we uncovered this, and the BBC worked with us on an investigation on this, we found out how big it was and it was actually reaching into diplomats and politicians and activists. So there are all these insidious tools being used as well. And they're being used elsewhere. The Saudis, for example, have been using Israeli-owned software to target human rights activists. Uh, there was a recent alert where actually you would get this Israeli software by someone would send you a WhatsApp call. You don't even have to answer it. But if your number's targeted, they're in your phone and you can't get rid of them. That's really scary. And what are the ways in which any of this or all of this is being resisted in Pakistan? So resistance is hard, but for some of the reasons I laid out. One, there isn't that kind of journalist unity. It used to be the case in Pakistan that even if you didn't really like that journalist, but if he was attacked, you felt an obligation to condemn what happened to them and even come out to the press club and express your solidarity. But broader solidarities have been forged, it seems, going by reports of the much, widespread... Much weaker now. Much, much weaker now. So it used to be the case where if a journalist was attacked, politicians who hated that journalist would go and at least visit them and express their concern. Um, journalists would see their own press freedom contingent on the press freedom that their colleagues enjoy. That's broken down. 
There's less international scrutiny of Pakistan as well. You see, if you go back to the Musharraf years and immediately afterwards, Pakistan was a huge story internationally. And at one point, you had so much scrutiny because you had more than 110 international journalists based there. You had human rights groups based in the country. Uh, Pakistan was very much dependent on its relationships uh, in the West with the US, with the UK, with the European Union and other people. Now, where the principal relationships are, are shifting from there to China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the UAE, um, none of them are pretty, none of them are very respectful of journalists or press freedom. But do you feel that there is now within Pakistan a pushback by civil society and democratic rights groups? Uh, I think you were talking earlier also about the PTM. So there yeah. are. Uh, the people trying, but it's very, very hard. The PTM, for example, has been subject to a media blackout. The only way you find out news about the PTM is either in the international media, on social media, or in uh, Pashto language outlets that international broadcasters have. That's it. You actually cannot find them or any reasonable coverage of them in mainstream Pakistani media. Columnists, who traditionally the English language media used to be... Uh, untouched. But now columnists, you can't, if you write a column about PTM, it won't run, even in the best newspapers. So it's very, very hard. There is a pushback. I think it will continue. I think there's something within South Asian societies that where actually dissent, because there's such long traditions of anti-colonial resistance, resistance to arbitrary rule, even at a very local level, that this is not sustainable as a situation. At some point, I think people will feel humiliated, will feel that they're being denied information, will feel that they cannot actually have access to the truth that they want and push back. However, I'm my optimism has been somewhat dampened by um, uh, the Indian election results, where it seems as if you can sell a different reality to the population through sympathetic media outlets and chess-beating anchors like Arnab Goswami, you don't have to be held accountable for your record in government. And you can stoke hatred and division and get away with it and win. That is indeed the case. And uh, it's. I think we're going to need a lot of dissent uh, throughout South Asia in the coming time. And uh, let's hope uh, outposts of struggle can thrive despite the situation. And thank you so much for explaining this to us and being with us here today. Thank you for having me. For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.